Hello and welcome to the Feel It to Heal It podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Kelly, and I am a clinically trained therapist, emotional wellness and life coach, and healer. My mission is to help as many humans as possible feel safe to feel their feelings in order to create a life beyond their wildest dreams. Thank you for being here and let's dive in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Morning Tea Live. Cheers to you. I'm actually drinking a smoothie instead of tea because I just got back from the gym. Cheers for showing up today and taking the time to connect back home to you. So for today, I am taking a um topic requests. My client always gives the best topic requests that I think can be really relatable and helpful for so many people. So we're going to be talking about integrating new habits and how this ties into attachment. Before we begin, let's take a breath just to ground together. Good morning to those of you who are joining. Thank you for being here. So wherever you are right now, whatever you're doing, let's take a breath. So sitting up nice and tall, rolling the shoulders back, placing your hands on your heart, closing off the eyes if that feels comfortable, and just start to anchor to your breath in its natural state. Just noticing if your breath feels shallow or deep and beginning to deepen it with each inhale and exhale. Noticing any sounds or distractions in your environment. Noticing any thoughts coming up. And as each thought comes up, you're just going to imagine placing it on a cloud in the sky, watching it float away, knowing you can always come back to it if you need to. And then returning your focus to your breath. And just noticing any body sensations, any areas of tension or tightness, any emotions coming up, any resistance. And just deepening your breath to show your body you're safe. And now together, let's just take three long deep breaths. So starting with the first, inhaling all the way in. Holding the breath at the top and slowly release. And again, breathing all the way in. Holding at the top and release. And one more, breathing all the way in. Holding, just noticing how full of air and life you are in this present moment and release. And then slowly bringing your breath back to its natural rhythm. Slowly coming back to the present, maybe taking any organic movement you need to just gently wake the body up. Maybe some neck rolls. Oh, just had a little neck crack. (laughs) Or some side stretches, whatever you are needing. And without hitting your lamp or anything around you, coming back to the present. All right. So let's dive in. So a little 
context, I never prepare for morning tea live. <laughs> I am the type of person where as soon as I get on, I just allow my intuition to guide me. And I trust that whatever is meant to come out of my mouth today and get into your ears will. And I always say a little prayer to the universe and the angels that whatever is meant to channel through and come out, that it will come out. So I saw this topic request of looking at integrating new habits and um, have not really given it any thought, but we're going to see what comes out. <laughs> and if you guys have any questions, you can drop them in the comment box below. All right. So as you guys know, I relate everything back to three things, trauma, the nervous system, and our attachment, because those three things are like the blueprint for how we relate and behave and feel every moment of every day. So if we're not looking at anything through the lens and the perspective of trauma and the nervous system and attachment wounding, we are missing a big chunk of the puzzle. So when we talk about integrating new habits, so particularly releasing addictive behaviors like TV, um, different foods that you're trying to eliminate, and, you know, maybe incorporating something else in your day. So maybe a daily walk or um, a journaling practice or a meditation practice. So the tricky thing with building new habits is that we have to slowly introduce them to our nervous system. So our nervous system knows that they are safe. So you have to remember that although our, as humans, we have such evolved brains and, you know, bodies and nervous systems. And we are so brilliant and adaptive in so many ways. Our brains are wired for one thing and one thing only, not journaling, not consistency, survival. And so we have to look at every new behavior that we're adapting at through the lens of how is my brain going to register this? Is it going to register it as a threat or safety? So that's why it all boils down to safety. So in order to show our nervous systems and our minds that these new habits are safe, we have to do them consistently. So consistency is one of the most important things, but then on the same hand, it is one of the most difficult things for humans to do because it is not familiar. We are so used to living in a world where we're doing different things every day. We're eating different foods. We're seeing new locations. We're talking to different people. We're doing new things at our jobs and our careers. We're meeting new people. We're trying new things. There's so much change in the day-to-day. -day. And so there's this beautiful balance that we develop where we want our nervous system to have the consistency it needs to build a really solid foundation of safety. And we also need to develop nervous system flexibility. So if we stray too far on one extreme to the other, so either we're so rigid with our routines and our structure and that divine masculine energy that we don't leave enough room for spaciousness and flexibility and spontaneity and impulsivity in an intentional way, it sucks the joy out of life. But if we go too far to the other end, which is more of that divine feminine energy, 
we can feel really ungrounded and we can feel really unsafe. Oh, sorry, I just had to move up my chair. Um, we can feel really ungrounded and really unsafe in doing all these new things. So we can be moving through life just in our sympathetic state or just in this like frenetic energy state rather than having this place to land. So you want to think of our nervous system as like that foundation of safety. It's the safe place to land, but then we want to be able to leave that land. It's like a, a kid leaving home for the first time or going off to college for the first time. You want to know that you're going to have that home base to come home to that, you know, family unit to come home to if shit goes <laughs> south but you also want to be able to have the freedom and the flexibility to leave and, and flee the nest, right? So we need this balance of the two. How do we develop that balance of the divine feminine, the divine masculine, or the, the structure and the flexibility, the, the routine and the flow? Both of these things can beautifully coexist if we allow space to develop both of them. But in order to do that, we need to first rewire our nervous system for safety. And we have to look at every single thing that we do as a way of showing our body safety or showing it that it's not safe. So we do this through our foods. We do this through movement. We do this through how we relate to ourselves, to the world, to things and emotions as they come up. So if we have, I was just talking to a client about this yesterday. If we have an emotion, let's say a fear come up and that fear is registered to our nervous system as I'm in danger. You need to go into fix it mode, problem solving mode, full on survival mode. Then our thoughts are going to be wired with all of these worry thoughts of, you know, how are we going to solve this and going right into problem solving which if you actually need to be in survival mode, that's very helpful. But if you're just living in the day-to-day, -day, it's actually not helpful at all because you are future tripping about something that's not actually even happening in the present moment. Because fear can come up because something historical is being triggered or because our brains in the present moment are just trying to keep us safe. So if we go into the car and we put on our seatbelt, some fear might come up if someone drives too close to us, right? That fear helps us keep us, it helps to keep us safe. So it's a really beautiful thing. And that's why if we are able to show our nervous systems, it's safe to be with the fear. It's safe for the fear to be here, to exist. Then it's not going to send us into the spiral of, oh my God, I need to problem solve or fix it or just go into full-on freak out mode because it's not actually helpful. And when we're in that state, we can't actually think clearly to actually solve problems in a really effective way. So when we're able to actually just be with fear and discern, is this fear telling me that something is wrong right now in the present moment? And if so, by staying as calm as possible, as regulated as possible, you're actually going to be able to solve that problem that much more effectively. Or is it historical fear? Is it just protective fear? But it's not actually telling me there's a real threat in this present moment. So how do we get safety around fear or any emotion? 
sadness, fear, shame, we have to shocker, feel it to heal it. (laughs) And healing it in the sense just means developing a relationship with it that's adaptive rather than a relationship that is going to send us down an unhelpful, unuseful rabbit hole of worry thoughts and erratic behavior. So we have to have space to feel it. And trusting that if you're actually in danger, obviously you're not going to be like, oh, let me just, again, sit on this rock and meditate and feel my fear. Like your body's going to tell you you're in danger. But if you're not in danger and the fear shows up, you want to just put your hands on your body, take a deep breath in. Okay. I notice some fear coming up. I notice I'm feeling it in whatever part of the body. Maybe it's the chest tightening or this like sinking feeling in your gut or sweaty palms. So I'll give you an example. I have some trauma around car accidents because when I was a kid, I was in a car accident. And when we talk about trauma being stored in the body, it's because we were not empathically witnessed after the traumatic thing happened. So after this car accident happened, my family seemed to move on to it pretty quickly. We were on our way to see Mama Mia, the Broadway show in the city. And we, you know, had the car accident. Everyone was okay. We, you know, did what we needed to do. We got to the Broadway show. We watched the Broadway show. We went to my grandparents' house afterwards. We talked briefly about the car accident and how it was scary And I have vague memories of like my mom and my grandma knowing that I was scared, but there was something about it where I didn't feel maybe held enough in that moment or safe enough in that moment. And so it's stored in my body. And so sometimes when I'm driving, I notice certain things, like if I'm driving over a bridge or a ramp, I notice that anxiety and that fear start to surface. So my palms get sweaty. I notice my heart beating a little bit faster. And before it felt like it was so out of control where it felt like, oh my God, I could feel so anxious that I might pass out. And then there's worry thoughts of what if I pass out while I'm driving and the worry thoughts just spiral and continue and continue. Now I know that that is stored trauma. I know that there's not actual present danger. I know that I'm still safe in the car while I'm driving, So what do I do when that happens? I notice it. I notice, okay, my, my palms are starting to feel sweaty. I know that I'm starting to feel a little bit triggered. And so I'm going to put my hands on my body. So let's say I'm driving and I put, you know, my hand on my leg or my hand on my chest, or maybe I just keep both hands on the wheel and I take a really deep breath and I start to orient to things that help ground me back into the present, into safety. So Rather than looking at the side of the ramp that makes me feel really anxious where I see the height, I look a little bit to the right. I see the trees. I see the buildings. I see the cars in front of me. I even sometimes distract my mind with, you know, singing a song really loudly or um, even just talking to myself like you're so safe right now. I got you. I'm with you. Like just holding myself through that. And then each time I do it, my body learns, okay, this is just historical fear. You can be with the fear. You can feel the fear without letting the fear drive the behavior. So that's just one example of how we can be with the fear and befriend it rather than letting it drive the show. 
So I know I went a little, a little off there, but tying it back into the new habits, which is our topic for today. The point is, is that we have to be able to do it in a way that shows our nervous system we're safe. And so consistency is the most important thing with that. And so we also want to know, remember that consistency can feel really hard. So we ease our way in with baby steps. So rather than starting like five new habits at once, we're just going to start one small baby step. So when I was changing my food habits, the health coach I was working with, she said, rather than giving you a meal plan and changing your entire diet from one extreme to the other, I'm going to just have you focus on breakfast, just breakfast. We don't have to worry about what you're eating for lunch, dinner, snacks, anything else. We're just focusing on breakfast. And we did that for about two to three weeks until my breakfast was so consistent and my body learned, okay, I can do this. I can stay consistent with it. And really what it comes down to is, you know, people wait for motivation to act. They wait for the motivation of, I feel so motivated to change my eating habits. I feel so motivated to you know, start journaling or working out or whatever it is, whatever the change is. But if we waited for motivation, we most likely would never make changes that we want to make for our lives. So when we start to take small baby steps that show our nervous system, we are safe to change this habit because keep in mind that old habit was serving a purpose. It was serving some sense of safety. So the food addiction I had it was about my body knowing that as safety. It, it felt like if I had released that, I would be so unsafe. And so I had to start baby steps. So choosing one small step. So there was a client I was working with on food and um, even focusing on an entire meal felt like too much. So we, we broke it down even smaller and we said, how about for this week, we just focus on the small, small, small steps. So when you're out to dinner, instead of ordering the Coke, maybe choosing the water with lemon or a seltzer, or instead of getting a third beer, get two beers, right? Like really just making small baby steps. Another thing that both I did in my personal food journey, as well as with my clients who I help guide through this is we first need to actually look at what it is, what it is that we're eating, what it is that we're doing. So this can apply to any habit you want to change. If you're trying to release TV, the first step is getting radically honest. How much TV are you actually watching? If you're trying to change food, what food are you actually eating? So I sent my coach pictures of what I was eating every day, which meant that I had to be with the shame of sending her late night brownies and cookies and all the foods that I felt shame around eating because the shame is the biggest blocker between our old behavior and actually adapting new behaviors or new habits. So if I want to develop a journaling practice, but I say I haven't journaled in months and months, I'm, I might feel shame around that. I might make it mean something about me, about my ability to maintain habits or to you know, stay consistent with something. And so I first have to just say what it is that I'm doing and be with whatever emotion comes up with that, whether it's shame or sadness. You know, when I first started getting back into working out and eating more consciously and intentionally, there was so much pain that I had to process. I had a lot of pain and sadness and shame 
around the fact that in grad school, I was in the best shape I had ever been in my life. I had finally achieved this lifelong dream of being fit and healthy because health was so important to me because of all the medical trauma that I had been through. And at the same time, the ironic part about that was that food and my weight was also a form of safety. And so this one thing that I needed to release in order to actually feel healthy and heal my medical trauma was also the thing that helped me feel safe. So it was it was a conundrum. <laughs> and so we had to really work through processing those layers of pain to feel safe to actually shift because we feel like if we shift, we're going to die. And this ties into attachment. Think about your five primary attachments right now. So take a moment and just take a breath in your body and notice what comes to mind or who comes to mind. Who are your five primary attachments? Now, I want you to think about those five primary attachments. What do they do in terms of habits and behaviors? Do they watch TV every day? Do they drink Coke instead of water? Do they drink alcohol every weekend? Do they go to the fast food line instead of, you know, something cooking at home? What do they do in their habits? And to clarify, this is not to place judgment or blame on anyone. Everyone is responsible for their own self. There is no judgment. This is a judgment-free zone because how could I judge anyone when I was the person doing all those behaviors? So we're not attaching good or bad to any habits, any behaviors. It's not good or bad because when we label something as bad, oh, binging TV is bad. We actually shame ourselves so much out of looking at how that behavior is serving us how that food, that episode, that um, alcohol, that substance, whatever it is, how it's actually playing a role in our lives and how our nervous systems know it is safety. So looking at those five people, looking at their behaviors and their habits, how would it feel if let's say those habits are not in alignment with the ones that you want, how would it feel to start doing things differently than them? And just notice what happens in your body as I say that. So for me, Luna is very, very vocal right now. Hello. For me, there was a lot of fear because I related to my primary attachments through all of my addictive behaviors. I would chat with my family about the latest show. I would watch TV with my family and my friends. I would smoke weed and drink alcohol with my friends. I would obsess about boys with my friends. I would call my family crying when I was in emotional distress because I was the baby of the family and I was so attached to just wanting their safety and their validation and their holding. Trying to think of any other behaviors. Um, when I started shifting, oh, money. Money is another good example. When I said to my coach, I want to be a multimillionaire, and we started processing how that would actually affect my attachments, it's it's so sneaky and indirect and subtle. So if nothing comes to mind immediately, I want you to just know that it may be something subtle. So for me. 
it's not like my family had money where if I then was making my own money, they wouldn't feel needed anymore because they don't have money either. So it's like, it's not that, you know, oh, they can't rescue me with money anymore. It's more so the fact that by me becoming a multimillionaire, first, that would require me to do a lot of the healing around my money wounds, around my attachment wounds, around my nervous system healing around my relational trauma, around my big T medical trauma, it requires so much healing to become the person that can feel safe enough to attract and receive and hold millions and millions of dollars. And my friends and family may have a different view on money. So I've had conversations with my dad where he's like, you know, money's not the the most important thing. Like, you know, it's life's not just about money, da, da, da. And it's like, yes, I totally hear you. I totally agree. But he's not fully viewing money and wealth in the same way that I am. And that's okay. It's just where we come from different experiences with money and wealth and different, not in terms of having it, because obviously he raised me, we grew up, you know, with not a lot of money, what with enough to survive, but not um not crazy amount, but more so around our beliefs and our energy around money. And so this was a conscious, intentional unlearning of all the things that I learned about money, that I couldn't be a therapist and make money. That, you know, my mom warned me so many times, if you go into the social work field, you're going to be broke. Like that's what I grew up hearing. So she didn't want me to go into the social work field. She wanted me to do something that made money. And then my dad wanted me to go in the social work field and not worry about money. And so, and there's so much ancestral and generational wounding around money because even my parents had this um, like psychic healer tell them that in a past life, they were pirates together. And they had stolen money. And that's why in their marriage, they had so much money issues. And my dad's not a full believer in all this stuff. But then when he went, I think it was either their honeymoon or some trip. And he saw this island and he asked the the receptionist, what's the name of that island? And the name of the island, I'm going to blank on it right now. So I won't say what the exact name is, but the exact name of it was the same island that the psychic had told them that they had basically lived as pirates and stole this money. And he was like, oh shit. (laughs) So it started to make him question it and get curious a little bit more. So the point is, is that I had to understand that if I was going to shift my relationship with money, that meant that I was going to be going against maybe some of the views that my family had around money, or I had to risk feeling judged or criticized or invalidated by them that, you know, I was just focusing on money and they like not fully feeling understood of why of my mission of what money represents to me. And so I had to go against the norm of what my family is and my friends, which is just like having enough. And when people relate through brokenness and sickness. And, you know, even when I had COVID, my dad like loved taking care of me because he was like, oh, it makes me feel like Papa Bear again, you know? And it's like, I loved it too. I love that he was taking care of me. And it's such a just natural parent thing to want to do. But we also have to look at 
when we're relating through sickness and brokenness, that's how we feel connected to our people, to our main attachments. And so to go against that by saying, you know what, I'm not going to have the cake for dessert or, you know, my client gave me a beautiful example where he's breaking his sugar addiction and his mom and him would always get coffee together as well as bake, you know, cookies and stuff at home. And he said no. And he was so fearful because he knew that his mom might have some, something to say about it and give him pushback because you have to understand that we are all mirrors of each other. So when we see someone do something and we're not doing that same thing, it makes us question. And for those that are maybe not in that same place of wanting to release addictive behaviors or, oh my God, Luna's going crazy. Um, (laughs) When we are not in that same place, it can make us feel insecure. So if I'm seeing someone make a buttload of money, doing healing work, becoming so fit, basically doing everything that I want to be doing and I'm not doing it, it can bring up shame for me or sadness for me or resentment or jealousy. And rather than looking at that myself, I could easily just blame and project and be like, oh, they just think they're so good and blah, 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 right? Like they think they're too good for everyone. I've had friends say that to me. You just think you're too good for everyone. I've literally had people in my life, my some of my primary attachments say that to me. Or I've had pushback where I've said I didn't want to watch TV and they're like, you know, it's not a bad thing if you want to watch TV. And it's like, I've never said it was a bad thing, but for me personally, it doesn't make me feel good. And so I don't want to do it. And so you have to understand that if two people, two primary attachments are relating and connecting through this behavior, this habit, watching TV together, laying on the couch together, um, you know, eating sugar together, going on ice cream runs together, going on shopping sprees together. Oh my God, that's a big one for me. Um, and, and then one day, instead of going on a shopping spree with my best friend, I'm like, Hey, you know what? I really want to be more intentional with my money and my purchasing. And like, I kind of don't want to do that today. Right. Then it, it puts the other person in a position where they're like, Oh, do I want to do that? Or it makes them feel like they're being left or they're being abandoned. Or if you're not connecting in the same way anymore, it makes them feel like their sense of safety is threatened. So when we change any habits, whether it's wanting to make more money, wanting to eat cleaner, wanting to, you know, a prime example is like, I'm the only vegetarian in my family. So when they're all around eating meat and they're like, well, what do we feed Rachel? It makes me feel like the isolated one. So it's being able to be with those feelings that come up and not making it mean anything about you and not sacrificing your needs and your desires just so that you can feel more connected and relatable to the clan. I had a client last night. Oh, I was so freaking proud of her. It was such a moment. She doesn't want to drink alcohol anymore, but her friend consistently asks for her to go out with her because the friend wants someone to go out with. And this client would always say yes. And she would tell me, but Rachel, I'm not going to, I'm not going to drink. I'm just going to go out with her and not drink. I'm like, okay. Like, Okay, your choice. Let's see how it goes. And then the next day she would box for me and be like, oh, Rachel, I gave in. She was peer pressuring me and I drank. And I was like, okay, it's okay. 
And let's look at what's actually happening for you where you don't feel safe to actually honor you. And so yesterday she said, you know, the same friend had asked her to go out again. And she was like, I don't want to go. And I said, so why are you going? She's like, cause she wants me to go with her. And I was like, well, are you living your life for her or for you? And she's like, well, but I want to, you know, break out this cute outfit. I got like coming up with these excuses to convince herself to go. I'm like, what's another way that you can break out that cute outfit. And she said, oh, well, I'm doing a brand photo shoot soon for my new business. Maybe I can use this outfit for that. And I said, would that feel like a more aligned way to break out that new cute outfit? And she got so excited, just smile beaming over her face and was like, yeah, I'm going to save this outfit that I bought myself for my brand photo shoot, which is something I'm doing for me rather than going out to a bar with a friend that I don't actually want to do. And so she said no, and it was really such a moment for her because in the past, it was so scary for her to say no. Because when we say no to others and yes to ourselves, that means that we position ourselves in a place to be judged by them, invalidated by them, criticized by them, and ultimately a risk of our inner child feeling like we're being abandoned. And so this is why it all goes back to attachment. If our inner child does not feel safe, if we don't have safety in our body and we feel like we're being abandoned, we will always choose attachment over authenticity. That's a concept from Dr. Gabor Mate. He talks a lot about for as long as we choose attachment over authenticity, we suffer. So my client who is releasing her TV behavior right now, it's not even that she was hooked on TV. It was that that was how she and her partner would spend time together. And so she says, oh, I don't want to watch TV. And he does. What does that do in their relationship? It poses a threat of disconnection. And so what I always tell people is with building new habits and integrating new habits, sometimes it's going to feel worse before it feels better. Sometimes when we're withdrawing from the TV, I'm almost on four weeks of no TV Last night I was feeling lonely and all I wanted to do was watch TV. And instead of watching TV, I sat with the fact that I was feeling lonely. I sat with the fact that I was feeling like anxious and some stuff was coming up and I had to just sit with it. And then once I sat with it, I said, what would be a more aligned way to spend my night? And so I got in the tub with the book pussy that I'm reading. I read my book. I spent some time in the tub, spent some time with myself. I went to bed early so I could wake up early to make it to the gym to then make it here for this live on time, which by the way, I was not on time because I'm always late. (laughs) So that is a habit I am trying to release, (laughs) bringing in more of my divine masculine of structure and routine. So tying it back to the, the balance of those two. So I'm running out of time because I have a client in two minutes. So we're going to wrap this up. Choose, summarize, integrating new habits. You're going to choose one small baby step to take. And you're going to do that baby step consistently. And when you're not consistent, you're going to get radically honest about what's getting in the way. You're going to ask for support and accountability when you need it. And then you're going to build off of that one step. And through that step, that's where you might gain some more motivation. Like I didn't want to go to the gym early in the mornings, but then I did it. And now I'm feeling differently. I'm looking differently. I'm noticing the effects. And so it's motivating me to keep doing it. 
That's how we gain that momentum and motivation. The second thing is you're going to look at how are you staying attached to people that have behaviors that maybe are not in alignment with your vision for your life or for yourself. And how are you choosing attachment over authenticity when it comes to engaging in the behaviors that they are engaging in? And can you sit with the emotions and the fear that comes up when you think about choosing and relating differently and being really gentle with yourself as you do this? Cause I know it's painful. And the reality is that people will either want to stay in our lives, even if we change or we change and we lose people and maybe it feels really lonely. And then maybe we attract people that are even more aligned or some people will come with us. I had one of, I had two of my best friends come with me on this journey where they're also releasing some behaviors and we're relating in a new way. And it's the most beautiful thing I've ever experienced. Like it, nothing makes my heart happier. And then there are friends that haven't come with me and I still love them. I still chat with them, but there is a little bit more disconnect because we're not relating in the same things anymore. So really looking at how can you take small steps to choose authenticity over attachment? And then over time, your nervous system will learn that those new habits are safe. And so with anything, consistency is the most important and we can come up with a million valid excuses of why we can't do things consistently. Even if you do it for 30 seconds a day, even if you do it for a minute a day, we all have a minute a day. And if you don't, I want you to get radically honest. Why is this more important than myself? Why is this TV episode more important than me coming home to myself and journaling and doing my meditation? Why is this person more important than me? Why is this food more important than me? Prioritizing and honoring your needs and your desires and looking at what being gentle with yourself actually means. If it's using that as an excuse to engage in behaviors that don't actually make you feel good, that's not being gentle with yourself. That's justifying and using valid excuses. So getting radically honest and being gentle with yourself of what comes up when you're radically honest. All right, guys, I got to wrap up. My client is waiting for me. Thank you for tuning in. Let me know how this all landed for you. If you have any questions and remember you are safe to choose you. And if you need support along the way, my DMS are always open and my group for anxiously attached women is currently enrolling and we work so much on releasing addictive behaviors. That is one of the core, core things we do in that group. So feel free to head to link my bio to learn more about it. And thank you guys so much for being here. I hope you have a beautiful day and always take time to feel it, to heal it and come home to yourself. Love you all so much. I will see you next week for morning tea.